Good morning. Robert J. Waldinger is an American psychiatrist and professor at Harvard Medical School. He's the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And this study has gone on for 75 years. Uh, so Robert and his team have been preceded by many others, because he's not that old, uh, to have a study for 75 years, to track the lives of 724 men. So what this team and this study is all about is they want to know what makes for a meaningful and healthy life in the long term. That's why they've been studying for 75 years. How do you get a meaningful and healthy life long term? Not just two years or five years or 10 year plan, but for a whole life. And so they've thoroughly researched the lives of these 724 men starting in their earliest years as adults. Uh, they started this study in 1938. They took two groups of men, one from an upper class, uh, socioeconomic class, and one from a lower class. The first group, the upper class, they were sophomores at Harvard when they began studying these men's lives. And so after they finished college during World War II, most of them went off to serve in the war. And then in this, the second group of men that they've been following and studying was a group of young men from uh, some of Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Uh, boys were chosen for the study specifically because they were from troubled and disadvantaged families in the 30s. Uh, so some of these boys didn't even come from homes. They lived in public housing or apartments that didn't have running water. So this was and continues to this day, so it is a very thorough study. And when these men entered the study, uh, they were interviewed personally, they were given medical exams, uh, the researchers went to their homes and interviewed their parents. Uh, these teenagers grew up into adults. Uh, one became the president of the United States. Some became factory workers. Others became lawyers, bricklayers, doctors. Uh, some developed alcoholism. Some developed schizophrenia. Uh, some of those lower class climbed the socioeconomic ladder and became upper class members of society, and others moved in the opposite direction. So now there's about 60 left. Less than 10% of these men are still alive. They're still participating in the study uh, as they're in their 90s, and the study has now begun to shift its focus to the 2,000 children of these men. So what's really interesting to me is how they've actually conducted the study. They don't just send them questionnaires. They still go every couple of years and interview them in their living room, uh, they have permission to get their medical records from their doctors. They even scan their brains. They talk to these men's children. They videotape them talking with their wives about their deepest concerns. So they have pretty full access into these guys' lives. And uh, Waldinger points out that studies like this are really, really rare uh, because funding normally falls apart within a decade or the researchers die off and the vision is lost. But Waldinger is the fourth guy to direct and lead this study. So with all that being said, what have they learned? Um, well, the lessons are not about wealth or fame, upper class or lower class. It's not even about how hard you work. It's not what culture tells you to aspire to. Do that, and then you'll succeed. The clearest message that they've gotten is this. And I quote Waldinger when I say, good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. 
So our passage today is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible or it'll be on the screen. We're continuing to journey through 2 Corinthians together. And at first glance, when we read this passage, it might sound like, oh, Paul is being really bouncy, jumping from one idea to the next. Uh, he's following a lot of tangents. But there is one theme which holds all of these thoughts together, and that's the theme of relationship. So let's look at this passage together. Paul writes in verse 12, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So like I said, this passage might seem like Paul is bouncing, but there's one theme that keeps it all together, this theme of relationship. And we see that there's at least four characteristics. We're going to look at four, of, four characteristics that Paul reveals of relationship in this passage. Relationships are important, they're defined, they're effective, and they're adequate. So let's, let's break this down and look at them one at a time. The first characteristic of relationships is that they're important. And we see this in verses 12 and 13 when he tells about what happened in Troas and how because Titus wasn't there, most likely he was expecting to meet Titus there, but because Titus wasn't there, he leaves a great opportunity for something that he really, really cares about. God had called Paul to plant churches where Christ had not yet been named. So Paul is going around planting churches, establishing the leadership, and then going on to the next city to plant churches. And at Troas, he says that he went for the gospel of Christ, so to carry out his mission, and a door was opened for him in the Lord, he said. But that wasn't enough to keep him there. Because Titus wasn't there, he didn't have rest in his spirit. And so this is just one example of how throughout scripture, God reveals himself to be a God of relationship, even more than a God of circumstances. Yes, he, he's sovereign over all the circumstances, but when we look to hear from God in our lives, we have to look to hear from him in relationship and not just what's going on around us in the world. God could have chosen to work through circumstances primarily, and if, if he did that, it would look like this. God says, I want you to do something, and so I'll give you the circumstances that you want in order to do that. And so when attractive circumstances come, ah, God's at work. I know that's good. But what about when circumstances are less than desirable then? Fortunately, God doesn't work that way. He's not a circumstantial God. He's actually the opposite. He's unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's a relational God who works through relationships. And if you want that kind of relationship that Paul had with the Corinthians, that Paul had with Titus, 
if you want to be influenced and impacted, you got to pay the price. You can't have a valuable $50 relationship for five bucks. Relationships don't go on sale. You've got to invest over time. So part, part of the reason that Paul wanted to see Titus and that he left this great opportunity was that he was more interested in the relationships that he had with the Corinthians, that he was waiting to hear from Titus how the Corinthians had responded to his last message. He was so deeply invested in their success that he left the task of planting this church in Troas. He left the task of, the very important task of communicating the gospel with people in order to go pursue the relationship with the Corinthians and their success. So we see that relationships are incredibly important. Circumstances matter, but relationships matter more. And the second characteristic that we see in this passage is that relationships are defined. We see this in verse 14a, which just means the first part of verse 14. Paul writes, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And so here, Paul is defining his relationship with God as one being led in triumph. And that phrase, led in triumph, it sounds really good. It sounds like what the Patriots did this week when they had their Super Bowl parade, right, in Boston. Um, but it's actually a lot different than what we'd expect that phrase to mean. Uh, in the first century, they would have understood what this verb to lead in triumph means uh, because it was a first century practice of a Roman triumphus and it's, it's basically a victory parade or march, but it's not like the Super Bowl champions victory parade or march. Um, let me tell you a little bit about it because this is the way that Paul defines his relationship with Christ. So it really matters. Uh, everybody in the Roman Empire would know about the Roman triumphus uh, ancient literature shows that there's at least 350 recorded triumphus or triumphus events uh, in history. So these were grandiose celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war, and the most theatrical pomp and circumstances. It basically existed to show, hey, Rome is great and Rome is the winner of this of this battle. And for the for the Roman Caesar or general, this would be the highest honor that they could receive, is to lead this triumph. The triumph existed to honor the victorious general, the one who led them to triumph in battle. But here's, here's what it means to be led in triumph. To be led was meaning that you were a prisoner of this triumphant general. You were his conquered slave. It signaled your utter defeat to be led in triumph. Ultimately, it normally signaled that you were going to be publicly executed and die. And that would reveal the glory of the one who conquered you if you were led in triumph. The only other place in the Bible that this verb is used is Colossians 2.15, where Paul writes that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. These were God's enemies, the devil and his demons, and God made them a public spectacle or display, and here's the verb, having triumphed over them through Christ. So their defeat would show God's victory. Their dishonor, dishonoring the devil in what Christ did on the cross, highlights God's glory, and their weakness magnifies God's strength. 
just as the Roman custom was intended also to do. That these great warriors who are now following the Roman general who triumphed, they were intimidating figures, but now they were conquered slaves, not intimidating at all. And so it's now surprising to see that Paul is putting himself and those who minister with him in the same shameful position that the defeated enemies of God have in Colossians 2. Both Paul and the defeated enemies of God are the direct objects. They're the ones being led in triumph. That's kind of surprising. It's not what you'd expect, not what I expected at the first reading of the passage. And what's also interesting to me is Colossians 2 is past tense, showing that God's enemies are already totally defeated, But with Paul and those who minister with him, it's present tense, showing that this is ongoing and continuing to happen. So my expectation, probably most of our expectation, is that Paul is next to Christ. Christ is the victorious general, um, or at least he's cheering him on, but he's actually in the humiliated position here, being conquered by God being the slave of God. And that actually fits with how Paul normally self-identifies. He normally identifies himself as Christ's slave or servant. And it's interesting that this passage, verse 14, he starts by saying, but thanks be to God that I'm always led in triumph. Paul's point is that his suffering is the means through which God is revealing himself. God's power is made perfect in his weakness. So I'll be the first to admit there's a lot that I don't know and that we don't know about that first century event, the Roman triumphus. But the one thing that we do know is that we're not the triumphant one. Christ is the one being honored in this life, both by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. He is Lord of all. And for this, Paul is thankful Not because he's a masochist who's seeking out pain, but because he is for Christ being honored both in his life and in his death. So our relationships are to be defined by Christ. The Roman triumphus was all about the victorious general, and that that is Christ. He is the victorious one. The third characteristic of relationship that we see here is that relationships are effective. You see this in verses 14 through the first part of 16. And what I mean by relationships are effective is I just mean that good relationships produce positive effects. This passage says, God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. We're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. So this fragrance is actually another part of the triumphants, of the the Roman triumphus. He uses this as a picture to make a new point. So put conquered slave on the shelf and now look at a new aspect of this Roman event. They had this march, this procession, and there were people who carried burning spices and incense And uh, basically, it was a really smelly parade because of all this stuff that they were burning. And the smell, depending on which side uh, 
of the war you were on, the smell would either remind you, ah, we were victorious, this is a sweet smell, or it would remind you, I'm a conquered slave going to die. (laughs) This smell is a smell of despair. It's a smell of death, or it's a smell of life, if you're on the winning side. And Paul is comparing his role as an apostle, his role actually as a Christ follower, and those who minister with him, to the fragrance. And that, and that fragrance, people either love it or hate it. But the fragrance itself is the knowledge of him. God is manifesting through us this smell of the knowledge of him. And so our role is to relate with God, to be in relationship with God. It's the same thing as what Jesus said when he called his disciples and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You cannot make a fisher of men if you do not follow Jesus first. So you can't be this fragrance. You can't be a smell of life to life or a smell of death to death without the knowledge of him, without this relationship. But with this relationship in place, you become effective. And so this isn't something necessarily that you need to add on to your schedule already. This is something that as you follow Christ in your marriage, as you follow Christ at your workplace, with your free time, with your friendships, you can proclaim Christ and make the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him known in every place. Every place starts with faithfulness in this place, wherever God has called you to. So for example, one of my mentors in college now lives and serves overseas. His investment in my life and the lives of other men are here in Wichita. We're still here in Wichita. And so the aroma of Christ is spread through him, both on the other side of the world and right now, here in this place. Because he was faithful, the aroma of Christ is spread in every place. Spreading the knowledge of him in every place always starts with faithfulness, though, in this place. And this passage also shows us what we should expect as we follow Christ. And if we're serious about following Christ, we will invite others to do the same. We will become fishers of men and fishers of women. And here's what we should expect as we move towards other people. Is that some were an aroma from life to life and some were an aroma from death to death. And that simply means that the acceptance of the good news about Jesus ultimately results in life, while rejection ultimately results in death. But there's also a progressive element, which is, you see it in the from life to life. It's progressive in the sense that when you hear the gospel, it either becomes more and more compelling to you or more and more repulsive to you. Those who are on the road to destruction, it's like a nauseous fume that relentlessly carries the unbeliever to their death. To those on the road to salvation, it's comparable to a compelling fragrance that invigorates. So Jim Elliott was a missionary who lived and served and died before the age of 30. He was a martyr, and he once prayed, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those that I'm in contact with to a decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork. 
that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. And Jim Elliot wasn't giving permission to be pushy or insensitive, but that's a man asking God to show others Christ in him. And that's an effective relationship with God. You will be polarizing to the world because Christ was and still is. But this relationship with God in Christ, that is effective for starting and sustaining change, transformational change in your life and in the lives of others. Relationships are effective. They actually produce something. It's not just about tarrying, hanging out, but hanging out actually does something. The fourth characteristic of relationship we see here is that relationships are adequate. We find our adequacy in relationship with God and only there. Paul writes, he asks the question, who is adequate for these things? He's saying, who's adequate to be a conquered slave? Who's adequate to be a smell? Then he says, we're not like many peddling the word of God. We're not selling it for personal gain. We're not in this for ourselves. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So he doesn't answer his question this week. We'll see the answer to this question next week, who's adequate for these things. But he does tell us what to look for, because we're all following someone. So if no one's adequate, then who should we follow? You should follow people with God-centered motives, not self-centered. People sent from God. People who are held accountable by God and to God. People not looking to make money or for personal profit. People who aren't saying, hey, this parade, this life that we're in, it's about you or it's about me. No, Paul says you should follow people who point to Christ as the triumphant one. You should follow people who are willing to suffer in order to communicate that Christ is the triumphant one. So let's look at an application. Obviously, it'll be about relationships. Uh, Paul jumps back and forth about relationships with others, like Titus and the Corinthians, then relationship with God, back to relationship with others, like being a smell among others, some who are perishing, some to life, and then back to relationship with God. He's not really jumping, though. He's, he's connecting what Jesus already connected. The greatest commandment, Jesus connected these two, and the greatest and the second greatest commandment. First greatest, the first and greatest commandment, love God with all your being, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, Jesus says, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So I just want you to know that the most important work at Orchard, what God is calling us to, the most important work is a relational one. And that's not to say that playing on the worship team or those who help make coffee or clean the church or help with kids downstairs, even preaching, not saying those are unimportant. It's not the most important. The most important work is a relational one that we're all responsible for. Your relationship with God, knowing and loving God. You cannot, I cannot, make God's love known to others without focusing on knowing and loving God first. I'm a terrible smell all by myself. 
but we are a fragrant aroma to Christ as we, we are a fragrant aroma of Christ to God as we know and love God, as we pursue him and that relationship first. And the second is like it, making God's love known to others. We don't just tarry just to tarry. We don't just hang out just for fun. There's a purpose. There is a mission, making God's love known to others. That is the most important work that will ever be done here. So how do we do that? Well, pursue God. We're all responsible to invest in your walk with God. Your quiet time is a great tool. Spending regular alone time with God. Some people have it in their car. Some people have it as they exercise. And of course, you can sit at a desk, listen to music in the background if you want. But find a way to connect with God, talk to him and hear from him through, through his word. And then pursue people. These aren't disconnected. But get connected to God's people through a small group. And then if you're in a small group, then find next steps to grow. Get lunch with one of those guys. Invest in a deeper relationship. Call them on the phone. Send them texts. Work out together. There's, there's a myriad of different ways to do this. But pursuing relationships is the most important work that you can do. And all of us can do it. We're all called to be ministers. But it starts first with relationship with God and then relationship with people. And as that happens, people will have a pull on your life. You might leave great opportunities, things that you care deeply about, because you care more deeply about those relationships. God is going to use people and use relationships to direct you. And as you invest, that relationship will become more and more clearly defined, both your relationship with God and your relationship with people. As you move towards relationships, you will be used by God. I'm confident of that. There will be an effect. Christ will impact those around you. And as you invest in relationships with God and other people, you'll come to a greater understanding of Paul's question, who is adequate for these things? Not me. But you'll enjoy seeing God glorified as you move towards relationships. And whether or not you move towards it or not, whether or not you decide to invest in relationships, this is being applied to all of us by God. Everyone has a relationship with God. To some, it's leading to a death which leads to a greater death. For others, it's life producing more life. God has a relationship with everyone because every single person's sin, mine and yours and everyone else, sin is personal to God. How you deal with it, how you define your relationship and deal with that sin is personal to God. The effects of your relationship are personal to God. So here's the good news. God takes all of this so personally that he became a man in Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was showing how important our relationship was to him. In fact, he was defining our relationship, that on our own we deserve what Jesus got, this wrathful punishment. But he also gave us a picture of what effectiveness looks like in the kingdom 
when Jesus obeyed at all costs, even to the point of death, he was demonstrating his adequacy and our lack of adequacy. That when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners. And when God raised up Jesus back to life after he died on the cross, God was showing the incredible importance of Jesus. That he is what he claimed to be, the resurrection and the life. And God redefined life and death and our relationship to life and death. It's not death to die. There's more to life than simply breathing and having your heart beat. God redefined life and death in the resurrection. And in the resurrection, he also also showed us what effectiveness really is. That even though all seems to be lost, there's actually a greater gain that comes from our loss. There's power displayed in weakness. And God proved his adequacy over all things in the resurrection. That God is adequate even over death. So relationships are what we are made for. Our long-term well-being is found in good relationships. I agree with the conclusion of the Harvard study that long-term well-being is found in good relationships. They keep us happier and healthier. But then the real question becomes, well, what's a good relationship? And they don't have a good answer for that because the answer doesn't come through observation. It comes through revelation. We cannot find what we need. God must show us. Matters of ultimate importance must be revealed to us by God. And he's done that. He's done that by becoming one of us, giving up his life, and then coming back to life. And if that, re- if that relationship with God is important to you as it defines your life, you will be effective because God will make you adequate. God is going to use you through relationships with others to bring the good news of abundant life to every place. Let's pray together. Father, if there's anyone here today who's pretending like they know you and they don't really, I pray that you show them the truth of their relationship status with you Give them the courage to talk to you about that and to talk with someone else they know. That's a matter of ultimate importance and you don't leave us ambiguous or vague. God, we together renew our commitment with you to relationship. If there's anything that we've treated as of greater importance this week, Bring that to our mind now. If we confess our sins, we know that you're faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. God, we just want to say thank you for initiating and sustaining this relationship with you. Thanks for making us your conquered slaves. We are not adequate, but we look to you to make us adequate and effective for your namesake. Amen.